Unsettling Knowledge, Episode 5, Visions of African Unity, a book chat. Welcome to this episode of Unsettling Knowledge. And today I'm really excited to talk with a dear friend and colleague, Frank Gerritz, uh, and his friend and colleague, Matteo Grilli, about their new book and edited collection called Visions of African Unity. And oh my goodness, are there a number of different visions encapsulated in that book? So we're going to hear about some of them today. That's enough from me because I didn't write the book and I want to hear the people who did. So I'll get first you, Frank, and then you, Matteo, to introduce yourselves and say a little bit about what brought you to the journey of this book. So my name is Frank Gerritz. I am a lecturer, or now I'm an assistant professor since June of 2020 at Utrecht University. And before that, I used to be a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Free State, where I met Matteo. And what brought us to this book was our, our joint interest in African diplomatic history, particularly focused on Ghana. So we met in South Africa and we decided that we wanted to bring all these ideas that we had encountered in Africa, in Europe, on the American continent, all these ideas together in one book. My name is Matteo Grilli. I am an historian, a historian of African history, African modern history. Mostly I deal with uh, the period of Kwame Nkrumah in Ghana, and I'm also trying to move now to some history of uh, liberation movements in Southern Africa, especially in uh, the least known uh, countries of uh, Southern Africa, that is Lesotho, Eswatini and Botswana. Currently, I'm a postdoctoral fellow uh, at the University of Free State uh, in uh, Bloemfontein, South Africa, and uh, actually I've been uh, there uh, ever since I met Frank Garrett. The reason why we thought about this book, I think, was because I've been working on uh, Kwame Nkrumah's foreign policy and uh, particularly his Pan-Africanist visions of, uh, of the future of Africa, of the future of Ghana, etc. And uh, Frank was pretty much doing something related to that at the same time. And we actually uh, looked at the same archive in Ghana, which was an amazing archive that we were almost among the first ones to be looking at this archive. Yeah, no, yes. and I loved that in your preface. You had a, a little moment where you talked about sitting in the archives together and exchanging the ideas that brought you to this book. That gives us a little bit of the, the journey you guys took. And I noticed it's it's just got a huge range of contributors. What was the process like of getting all these people together? I mean, you've got everyone in there. You you want an 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 honest answer there? Yeah. Uh, it How was get... it was <laughs> yes. it was very taxing. So it took a lot of time. We essentially just put out a call for papers on all the regular fora, right? For for academics, there there's these online fora in which we try and bring people together. We got uh, paper proposals, and then we also reached out among our personal networks because we you know we are trained in Europe, but then we worked in an African university, South African university. So you get a little bit of a, a very diverse network. And we consciously wanted to include uh, African scholars in the conversation on African unity, which you know is would, would be self-evident. Uh, people were very enthusiastic about the prospect of what we wanted to do. So it was, it was the idea and the project that did most of the work. 
Yeah, the idea, uh, basically, the idea behind the book was uh, was actually to bring together all these people. We 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 actually noticed we we talked about it, and we actually noticed that there were not so many collective works or uh, textbooks even about African unity since, like, say, twenty five years or so. I think the latest actually major contribution about the history of the OEU, for instance, was from nineteen ninety seven uh, by Klaus von Verhoeven, and uh, we were, uh, we noticed that there were so many people working on Pan Africanism and uh, the history of the OAU, AU, and we talked that it was necessary to bring them into conversation. There, there hadn't been any, um, you know, situation so far in which they could actually intermingle, they could actually uh, speak to each other. And we wanted to give uh, a, a platform to do so. One of the contributors who became involved in the project and now has a chapter in the book will introduce himself. He was unable to join us in person, but sent in his comments and I'll drop them into our conversation as we proceed. Greetings from Nigeria. My name is Omiangwa Oluchuku Ignatius. Thank you for having me. It is a privilege to make this wonderful contribution as part of celebrating the groundbreaking publication. I came about this wonderful topic at the peak of my PhD program at the University of Ibadan. My research focuses on the transnational and diplomatic history of the Nigerian Civil War. Yeah, so you guys were sitting there talking together in the archives, meeting all these people who were working on ideas of African unification, on the Organization for African Unity, and also people who were working on this thing called Pan-Africanism, which I too, in my own work, have noticed coming almost back into scholarly fashion. Frank, Pan-Africanism, you know, what is this thing and what is it to you? Pan-Africanism in, in sort of one sentence is the aspiration of people of African descent to return to the African continent and to unite the African continent. Those two things tend to be sort of constants in this, uh, in this history of Pan-Africanism, right? And the African slave trade, that idea, you know, is propagated by, by African intellectuals, but also by African-Americans then in the U.S. who pick up on those ideas. Because remember, uh, the Caribbean is very close by. So these, this is sort of one big intellectual network of people who, who know and read each other's work. And then those ideas become more and more political in the course of the 40s with decolonization after the Second World War. Those ideas become more and more political and with decolonization all these African leaders, and I think that is that is what, what is really the, the working definition for our book, all these African leaders get a political platform to then project this idea of Pan-Africanism to other parts of the continent. So, conceptually, Pan-Africanism is a conclave, a conclave of oneness, where all the aspirations and visions of African states gather together in mutual understanding. So, yeah, I think I have a, a better understanding of how you guys are presenting Pan-Africanism in the book now. And, and it's actually amplified my own understanding of Pan-Africanism, which is awesome because I work on it as well. But I asked you also about visions, the visions in the title. Right. I think the, the word vision allowed us to include all types of visions for the future uh, and how they were viewed within Pan-Africanism. That was sort of our idea. Uh, and by employing such a broad definition, that allowed us to include a lot of different uh, ideas in the book. So 
one vision of African unity is the classical Kwame Nkrumah wants to unite the African continent. Uh, he's very um, direct. He wants to do this immediately after independence in the in the 60s. That's his vision. His uh, other political rivals uh, like uh, Kenya, where uh, Kenyatta is a leader, uh, Kaunda in Zambia, want a more uh, gradualist approach, want to build regional federations and then build upon that to build a bigger union. That is something that we know from a lot of the research already. And those are in the book as well. I think what the value of the book is that we've also included and highlighted a lot of other visions of our community. One of them being a vision of unity that was propagated by by apartheid South Africa. This vision of essentially building a, a big copper union uh, in which uh, South Africa, uh, Rhodesia, and then Katanga, which was separated from the Congo when it became independent uh, in 1960, would build, would be sort of one big white federation in which Portugal could also join. That's one vision that's also in the book. Another vision that's also in the book is the vision that our, our um, Senegalese contributors uh, bring forward. Uh, they talk about how a lot of a lot of these ideas of African unity were actually bottom up how a lot of a lot of local communities ignored existing boundaries had marriages traded um had friendships across borders and they trace a lot of the a lot of the remnants of that of that pre-colonial unity these pre-colonial communities in street names in in a lot of personal stories so i, I think the the word vision really allowed us to be as broad as possible and to include a lot of the the newest and more, most diverse type of research that was out there. And I think that was our, our main intention of doing so. Oh, I love that. And and this idea that people do marry across boundaries. You know, I often say to my students, humans gonna human. Yeah, <laughs> but absolutely. So if we had just focused on the political on a political project, we would not have been able to include what is what is one of the most valued contributions in the book. I mean, another contribution in the book looks at Moroccan poets and their visions of sort of an Africa filtered into political ideas about uh, independence in Morocco and how that sort of was connected with uh, emancipation struggle in the rest of Africa, right? That would not would not have been part of the book. It's uh, written by an incredible, incredibly talented PhD student in the US. So we're very happy that we use this term vision to be as broad and diverse as possible. Yeah, and those comments about poetry um, really ring a bell with me because I've often talked about cultural politics and how it's very difficult to separate culture from politics and that art has a political valence. What do you think are some of the more political aspects or perhaps the more classical political and international relations history aspects in the book? Because you guys claim to be transforming international relations as well, right? Our, our podcast name is Unsettling. So how are you unsettling international relations? Well, I think the main, uh, the main way we do that is, well, is in two, two ways, like the contents of the book and the way it was actually, uh, actually created. We didn't want to place Africa in, uh, uh, as a protagonist of international relations and not just an object of, uh, you know, the, the, the maneuvers of uh, puppeteers uh, in the international stage, but actually place Africa as the center of uh, international politics uh, and the way it actually played uh, an independent role in uh, many international relations issues, not just like playing out, uh, uh, you know, like the Cold War game or uh, or even now just like being, uh, again, pawns of a bigger game, 
but actually African states trying to place themselves within the international order with their own role, with their own ideas of international relations, with their own idea of development, etc., etc. The other way in which we, I think, work towards, you know, particularly taking care of uh, allowing voices of African scholars to be heard. Uh, and this is particularly uh, important for international history in history of international relations, because most of the time, scholars, African scholars working in Africa, they don't have, uh, and that is an unfortunate thing in the international system, they don't have the same means as people working in the Northern Hemisphere uh, to be working uh, with full access to all the sources that might be available for uh, doing a proper international history, although they, of course, have the access to African sources or sources in the African continent, which are extremely important, and we wanted to highlight that. But sometimes they lack the means to be fully involved in a wider discussion, uh, wider access to documentations, etc., documents, uh, sources, etc. African academians struggle a lot to conduct research. Non-availability of technology, non-availability of electricity. I will share my experience with you. When I was doing my PhD, I found it difficult. I struggled to get electricity to work on my, on my research project. I have to move from one place to another in search of electricity to work on my project. It is interesting to know that I did not get any grants during my PhD. I think we, we wanted to focus on African agency in the widest way possible. So uh, one of the things that has bugged me in particular is sort of reading these international histories that limit the agency of a lot of African actors in international affairs to resistance. So there's essentially the only way Africans engage international system in the 50s and 60s is through resisting international pressures, which, you know, from any other perspective would be weird, would be strange, right? So Europeans in the course of the Cold War, uh, Asian actors in the course of the Cold War all had sort of their own ideas, their own ideologies, uh, which they wanted to project wanted to project abroad and the way in which they wanted to change the world. And then when it comes to, to the African continent, this vision of Pan-Africanism and Pan-African unity is sort of limited to something almost national, right? It's almost as if Pan-Africanism is a form of nationalism to deal with internal divisions, and it doesn't have any sort of impact in internationally, which just isn't true when you look at a lot of the evidence. Uh, Nkrumah's um, idea for an African unity was picked up by, I mean, there's a lot of new research that is coming out that, that sort of traces these ideas. His vision of an African unity is picked up in other decolonization struggles outside of the African continent. So I think much what we wanted to do with, with the book was also make a plea uh, for saying, look at these ideas, take them seriously, and integrate them in your research. I would like also to highlight the fact that uh, uh, not many people uh, actually realize that Pan-Africanism still plays a role in some ways, uh, in many ways, actually, I think, in international relations uh, today, in today's Africa. Meaning that uh, it's not like some weird idea from the 1950s of a uh, utopian uh, crazy man uh, like Kwame Nkrumah or Nyerere, and that died there but actually kept living. And actually, if rhetorically, maybe it's not called like Pan-Africanism, but in practice, uh, many, many uh, projects of unifications of uh, economics, politics, uh, uh, culture, etc., are still happening now. And uh, there is still like much 
going on in the African continent in terms of uh, inter-African uh, collaboration and discussion and uh, and uh, unification. So it's not a an old thing related to the past only. Yeah, and I was you know, when Frank was talking about African agency before, well, for a start, I wanted to tease you, Frank, because agency is one of these scholarly words that we all use. And my students sometimes say, well, what do you mean by agency? And um, I sometimes define it as wiggle room or as the ability to make choices, have voice and have action, uh, the capacity for action, even within a set of constraining systems. Um, but I mean, everybody has their own definition, of course. But one of the things I love then is that Visions not just acknowledges this ideological and international relations component, but also, yeah, this agency, this active movement. And it does another thing too, as I was listening to Matteo talk about how these visions persist and people still believe in them. Um, African regions, African nations, African communities, African voices, and the visions they're expressing have forward momentum, are not just resisting, but initiating. I think this is also a wonderful scholarly intervention. One of the things that we really wanted to get rid of is this notion that African actors just resist resist or utilize international pressures and don't don't bring the pressure themselves. I mean, what is the biggest international relations problem after the Second World War? African decolonization. Latin America is already decolonized. Asia is, you know, India is decolonized. Indonesia is independent. China has had its civil war. A lot of these questions become settled in the in the 50s. What remains a very open question is what to do with the African continent. And then this has this has changed in the past 10 years. But before that, we were sort of writing these histories as if this wasn't on the table at all. I mean, which cannot logically be true. Right? We still project this, no this notion of, of an Africa being, being weighed down by World Bank and IMF debt uh, back into the past. And I think we as scholars who you know, actively want to research these African archives, uh, want to engage with African universities, have come to realize is that, you know, th that these debates that are happening on the African continent from today already happened in the 50s. And we want to make that point with the book. Other kind of nuggets or chapters that you're particularly proud of or that you think really exemplify the work that you're doing in the book? I think that the whole book is, is very interesting. Of course, there are uh, some chapters maybe highlight better this uh, notion of uh, visions of African unity. In a way, I think, for instance, uh, this uh, chapter that uh, was mentioned by uh, Frank also, it can help to understand like the, the wide range of uh, connections and networks that were going on in the African continent at that time. Uh, freedom fighters from Portuguese colonies uh, speaking in French with French intellectuals in an Arab country uh, about uh, issues of Pan-Africanism and maybe mentioning the struggles happening in Southern Africa. So we can see like the, the, the wide uh, dimension of networking change going on in the African continent. We have to remember that the African continent is very, very active since the dawn of time in exchanges and networks and, uh, and all these kind of things. The last part of the book, the third part of the book is extremely interesting as well because there is uh, a wide range of topics uh, considering more like political science I, I give just the example of a, a chapter dealing with the question of human rights in the African continent. That is an extremely interesting topic because what are human rights in an African setting? Is there any Pan-African conception of human rights? Uh, is there 
the chance to actually build a Pan-African uh, court of human rights that is actually working properly? And what is its relation with uh, international courts of human rights, such as the ones of the United Nations, etc.? And I think all these topics are extremely interesting because, again, they place Africa within the international system and they ask the question, what is the role played by the African country? Is a Pan-African dream also entailed, uh, for instance, the from many, many, including Kwame Nkrumah and other people, uh, actually uh, theorized back then that uh, it was impossible to actually have a true independence for the African continent without having a peace uh, sort of a corp, uh, a sort of collaboration among African states to defend their sovereignty. The African Union is trying to answer this question. They created a, a, a military force that can actually be, be, be working instead of the UN forces or uh, together with the UN forces. So, again, I, I think the book covers many, many important topics. So, I wouldn't know how to pick one specific uh, chapter over the other. I think we did a very great job in uh, bringing to the table many different things. We have poetry, we have politics, we have war, we have law, for instance, or economics. As you said, so many different uh, perspectives covered. And I really, you know, was intrigued by the nitty grittiness of the international relations there too. Um, in this in this case, the Nigerian civil war, where you have, it's not just a civil war or a tribal war or a conflict, as sometimes it's portrayed by the media. There is this sophisticated apparatus of diplomacy then becoming engaged in these local um, political and military conflicts. My chapter shows the extent of external intervention in African affairs, that African politics African diplomacy in general is not devoid of external intervention. Even though that the Nigerian Civil War uh, was an internal affair or African affair, it is important to note here uh, external factors had already taken over the, the Nigerian affairs. For instance, Britain established intelligence operations that assessed and monitored developments in all the regions in Nigeria. So you have the British with a position here, you have the Americans with a position here, you have the Soviets, the French, uh, and it surprised me to see, you know, the French are so uh, divide and conquer still in the 1960s um, with regard to Africa. But you have these powers, but they're also, as you said, Frank, engaging with uh, Nigerian politicians, Nigerian leaders, Nigerian actors, and the, the Biafran leaders who are attempting to split. And it's a very mutual or multi-directional process of international relations. Um, so I think that theme really comes through clearly in a lot of chapters too. One other that you guys haven't talked about yet, but I, I was this a grassroots process or was it a top-down process? You mentioned a little bit about people marrying across borders. Overall, can you say it was a top-down process, a bottom-up process? I mean, I think African unity is is very much uh, a top-down. I mean, I, I don't think that people on a grassroots level. I mean, what I really got from the from the chapter um, where Dr. Dumbia and um, Usman Diouf interviewed different people in in Mali and in Senegal. 
was that these people were just living their lives, right? I mean, they weren't thinking about, you know, African on the African continental scale. They're just living their lives, uh, marrying, uh, getting permissions. That was one of the big things. They needed to have permission from um, an official in one village to be allowed to trade uh, in in this sort of constellation, which had very little to do with where they were. If this was Mali, if there's Senegal, people weren't really thinking about this. And we see this process... We see this process as well in um, something that me and Matteo know quite well is sort of the, the border region between South Africa and Mozambique. There is a large history there of, um, of labor migration, of people just traveling around, not really, you know, not really understanding why there should be borders in the first place, where colonial domination becomes an imposition on people's normal lives. And then Pan-Africanism is, in a way, is a response to, to that, right, uh, is a is a political intellectual response to to people being uh, limited in their ability to move around, which which had always happened. So I think I think if we sort of start talking about Pan Africanism as a top down process, I think it's something very different from the bottom up one. And and I don't think this is unique to African regions, to African communities, to people in Africa either. I mean I people live their lives and then they have these multiple affiliations and these multiple ideas and you but you capture so much of of that in the book how it's a, a both and really um both top down and bottom up and there are so many voices involved i did notice that there's this definition or this characterization of some of the leaders you talk about and some historians who study africa and and visions of african unity some of them you say are Afro-optimists and some are Afro-skeptics. Can you explain what those are and also which one are you? Well, those, those, uh, those definitions uh, are commonly used in uh, African history and history of international politics, etc., et to define uh, two uh, different waves of uh, studies around the African continent. Uh, so the optimists would, uh, would be the, those scholars that during the 1950s and 1960s were very optimistic of the development project that was uh, actually put in place in, uh, in the African continent. As Frank said before, uh, African independence was the big thing happening in the early 1960s, and uh, all the world was actually, for a brief time, but nonetheless, the whole world was actually looking at the African continent. And before being uh, sort of uh, becoming pessimistic about what was going on, was very optimistic. And many in the West were actually were actually scared of what was going on because you had uh, an enormous amount of new players in the international stage who could actually play a very important role. And I think many scholars were actually very optimistic of the promises of the first wave of independences. Then uh, what happened was during the 1970s, African states started to gain a lot of debt and uh, they started uh, basically collapsing uh, uh, under their own weight. Of course, then uh, that uh, series of pessimistic visions of uh, of the African continent started to to be raised uh, up until the lowest point that was the 1990s with the Rwandan genocide and basically like the complete uh, the, the idea that basically Africa was uh, an entire failed continent. But then something happened again in the last 20 years, slowly but surely. The African continent started to rise again uh, in the interest of the media, in the interest of scholars, in the interest of economists, etc., etc., etc. And uh, we could talk about a new wave of optimism in a way. We could, yes. 
many scholars, I think they went back to the 1950s and 60s to understand if those ideas, those projects that were, were actually envisioned back then, why exactly they failed though? Uh, what was exactly the situation back then? Uh, what was the place of Africa in the international system, etc.? They started asking questions. They started to going back and sort of, you know, rethinking the whole uh, narrative of what happened after independence, after 1960 on, and kind of changing the narrative, not just this, you know, the golden age of African independence and then the dark ages of uh, the, the vampire state. I think that we are, as the newest generation, newer generation of African scholars, we are optimistic in the way that we find the African continent extremely uh, exciting as a uh, place to study, as a place to live, as a place to, you know, like... Uh... Engage with and converse with and reflect on and, and, and yet you don't represent Africa as, you know, that monolithic continent with the single tree in the sunset desert, but you really do bring the multiplicity of, of views out. Um, I saw Frank gesturing there. I think he has a book yeah. cover, looks exactly like yeah. that near to him. Um, but Frank, you know, okay, are you an Afro-optimist or an Afro-skeptic? I mean, I think, I think one, of the, one of the things I want to stress, though, is how strange this discussion actually was. You had sort of Afro-optimists in African studies who sort of argued that the potential of Africa was wasted because of incompetent leaders. And then you have sort of these Afro-pessimists who essentially argued that Africa as a whole was a lost cause. And I think a lot of scholars today are trying to just break out of this mold of focusing on Africa. And what we're doing today is, is positioning Africa within a wider as just in just another area in the world that is connected in an international global connective system like that's how we both approach uh, approach the topic and i think it sort of it it also signals it is an indication of this of a crisis of in the current study of regions right these region studies today um, are dealing with a crisis of legitimacy is african studies still a legitimate academic field that i mean this is this is a seriously debated question because is, is it warranted to just focus on one continent within the bounds of that continent i think our book provides the answer here i don't want to get in too much trouble but i mean we we approach the continent as we would any other continent why would you why would people there make other decisions i mean they they could make other decisions informed by by their history and by their own ideological, you know, the way in which they're informed ideologically, but they don't make different decisions because they happen to live on the African continent. Like a lot of our colleagues, we go beyond this sort of debate about where where do we place Africa, but we are we are still often confronted when we when we have more popular discussions with questions about why is Africa so unsuccessful, why hasn't it developed, which are, I mean. Questions that don't really, you know, th th those are questions that you can't really answer and that, you know, you could ask the same questions for, for Europe or you could ask the same questions for Asia, to be, to be fair. It just yeah. depends on where you're located. And are they productive questions in the end? Like, what are the productive questions to ask is, is always something that I think about. One of the productive things, uh, <laughs> a little segue, no, but one of the productive things about your book that I found was both a contribution and also kind of a methodological statement too was the section on archives at the the very end and to turn to the archives 
many of the essays in the book are based on archival research, which Onyanwa pointed out are the gateway to historical discovery. He explained how, for him, these become a powerful way to see the difference between when events take place and when they're recorded. So archival documents also become a specific version of the truth, as he notes. I'd like to state here that archives are the gateway to historical discovery because it helps you to understand, it presents the event the way they are, without bias. Because you see the raw document, you see how it was recorded, you see the date it was, the events took place, and the date that events were recorded. Because the date that event took place is totally different from the date the event was recorded. So as well as these reflections from Onionwa, Frank, we had a great conversation about archives because you included that reflection and description of the African Union collection put together by the archivist, which is just brilliant. We're very proud of this. I mean, we're very proud that we've been able to, to get, because I met Chetsa Molefe when I was doing research in Ethiopia. She, she's the archivist of the African Union archives. And I found, I found this archive to be an incredibly interesting story in and on itself. So currently, uh, but this has changed. This is going to change really soon. Uh, currently, it's still the it's still the situation that you have to you have to make an appointment. Then you are allowed into the compound of the African Union, which looks very much like the UN compound in in New York. Essentially, uh, you you're allowed in. You walk past the new building that's been put up by the Chinese, uh, and then you're sort of huddled into one of the first buildings that they put down there in the sixties, uh, and that's where the archive is now. You get the papers, they give you the, the papers, then you have to walk, or you can take the bus service, but there's then you have to walk from the old building into the new gigantic, almost copy of the UN building that the Chinese put there. And there's a library in that building. That There you go and consult the documents. But it was often very rainy. So I would like walk out and like protect these documents, afraid that something would happen. For, for us, it's, it's insane. And this, I mean, these types of archival practices, that was in, was in itself a very interesting thing. Now, and this is something that's also being highlighted in the book, they're using a, they're going to use a new building or they're already using a new building that was also built by the Chinese that has an integrated uh, archival, you know, just the latest technology. So they're really working to, to bring this, bring these archives up to a level that it needs to be in 2021. Right. And what I want to stress is that the Belgian foreign affairs archives are in the same sort of deplorable state. So this isn't this isn't an African problem. Right. This is something I do want to stress. But if, I thought that this experience in and of itself is an incredibly like going there and doing the research itself was such an interesting experience that I wanted to bring a part of it into the book. Right. Another thing that really struck me was if you see what the Chinese are investing in in this compound. And then there was this sort of German funded building uh, on on friendship and reconciliation, like I'm sorry, uh, I'm sorry, Angela Merkel. That wasn't like if you compare it to what the Chinese are giving them, uh, that wasn't that wasn't what you should have you know you should have given them a little bit more money, um, a little more money and a little less friendship, <laughs> a little less friendship. Yeah, no, I I really got away uh, from that compound with uh, with a really better understanding of of what the Chinese are doing and what the Africans are doing, which is. By funding this building, 
they have really institutionalized this uh, so there's this south-north division of the world. They have institutionalized it in an institution. And the Chinese ambition to essentially fund a lot of authoritarian regimes across the continent as a way to promote their authoritarian development model, as opposed to the, you know, the Western model since the 70s and 80s, which is, you know, you also have to take care of, of democracy. That is what is happening in that compound. And the, the African Union archives are a part of that story. That's what a part of it. What I wanted to do with bringing her contribution into the book is is communicate that, on top of of course informing scholars what is actually in the collection. Wonderful, and it does. It operates at both of those levels. Actually, when you read that section on the archives, and I think you've given it a taste of the archive as both a repository of knowledge, but also as a political institution. Also, the, as you said, the final level is to just tell scholars what's out there so you can continue bringing more voices into the conversation and more perspectives into the conversation, which in itself unsettles knowledge and brings new knowledge. And that brings me to my last question. I mean, I think you've talked a bit about how you unsettle knowledge, what you do that is different. Um, But I have a bit of a cheeky question, and it's inspired by your last essay uh, in which, or the the reflection in which Toyin Falole thinks about African unity and how it might be achieved economically, militarily, politically, through sports, through education. Uh, And of course, your book is contributing to the kind of disruptive or creative foundational education that Falole proposes. Falole, in that essay, sounds like African unity is still possible. Is it? Yeah, I, I just want to um, maybe place that essay in, in a little bit more context here. So I'm just going to read like one sentence from his sort of concluding remarks here. So he says, Africa's unification requires a constant collective intellectual envisioning channeled towards Africa's greater development. And he, he takes this very seriously. So this uh, essay is based on his uh, the speech or the talk he gave during our workshop. So the, the book itself is actually the, uh, the, the product of a workshop that we organized in Bloemfontein at the University of the Free State, where we flew in uh, different people to have a very engaged uh, discussion pre- pre-COVID when we still had those types of discussion. We had a two-day conversation on different visions of African unity. He gave uh, the closing remarks and uh, this, this essay about the future of African unity is, is part of this. It was an incredibly fun thing to, to hear. It was an interesting conversation to have. Uh, he made an impassionate plea for African uh, sportsmen uh, and women, right? African uh, cultural uh, activists, African politicians, to maybe just uh, look at what the U.S. is doing and try that. And if that doesn't work, try something else. And if that doesn't work, try something else. Because the product that they have, that Africa has in terms of culture and sport and and all these other aspects of, of, of Africanness, his argument is, you know, it, it would work very well. And it does in many ways. Nigerian music uh, is very, is very popular is being mixed in with, with sort of electro uh, soundtracks uh, for people who are in that scene know very well that African music plays well in, in a lot of underground electro um, uh, scenes. Uh, and he makes this argument that they should just keep trying and, and that, that there's no no reason to not have uh, Africa unite, and it was it was very it was a very impassioned conversation. I think 
the, the, the African continent is, is, is seeking integration uh, like constantly. And that is not only for idealistic reasons. It's not just something that is decided among uh, a few intellectuals speaking to each other, etc. I think uh, it happens because it's a necessity for the survival of the African continent in the international market system. Interesting. I would also, sorry, I would also add something that might be a personal point of view of mine. Uh, so I, I don't know if Frank agrees or not, but I think Pan-Africanism is also necessary because African nationalism in many ways actually uh, not only failed, but actually created a lot of conflict and problems in the last 70, 60, 60 years or so. So I think intercultural exchange, uh, African unifications rather than division and this attempt to create a sort of a Ghanaian-ness uh, of it is. Just, let's just think of the problems that, that this idea of Ivorite has created in Ivory Coast. Racism, all these scandals, like uh, inter-ethnic. Of course, these are the product of colonialism, but then they were fed with a lot of you know, nationalist, supremacist, uh, racist uh, sort of uh, rhetoric for 60 years. And I think it's about time that actually we go back to discussions about, you know, what makes African people actually uh, capable of uniting. I think the, the, the African continent is, is, is seeking integration uh, like constantly. And that is not only for idealistic reasons. It's not just something that is decided among uh, a few intellectuals speaking to each other, etc. I think uh, it happens because it's a necessity for the survival of the African continent in the international market system. Onionwa agreed. He argued that African unity is possible, but it must recognize the downtrodden and the common person. African unity is possible, but we really need to identify the type of unity we want in Africa. And I state categorically that the type of unity that this Africa is in their need of is a unity that recognizes the downtrodden, the common man on the street. That is the type of unity we want, not the unity that recognizes only the elites. He continued that this unity must promote community development, human rights, equitable distribution, and a common voice amongst different ethnic groups in Africa. It is a unity for community development, a unity for recognition of fundamental human rights, a unity that recognizes the importance of equitable distribution of natural resources, a unity that recognizes the common voice of different ethnic groups irrespective of political affiliation, is what is possible in Africa. These are stirring words and a fitting endpoint for our conversation on Pan-Africanism, African unity, and how it has been envisioned in the past for the future. It remains only to thank Frank Gerritz and Matteo Grilli for an in-depth peek into the making of the book and for their reflections on its rich content. We're happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you. To thank Onionwa Olushuku for sending his comments in, despite technical challenges. And the biggest thank you to Melina Yalanki and Eden Simpson, our interns, for producing the episode. We hope you enjoyed it, and we invite you back to peek behind the steamy scenes of Netflix's hit series Bridgerton. We'll discuss how race, difference, class, and our visions of heaving bosoms in the past all open up much broader conversations about the traces of empire in our present.
Join us for episode six of Unsettling Knowledge coming soon. And thank you for listening. From Utrecht University, I'm Rachel Gillett.